and welcome to a very special episode of the Paranormal Sun. Indeed, the very first episode of the Celtic Sun. Coming to you live from Tower Studios. As always, I'm JT, and each week I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. Irish mythology boasts such a wide range of tales and stories, many of which have stood the test of time and are still present in the Irish culture to this day. Many tales and stories that date back thousands of years have been told time and time again, right the way across Ireland, usually passed from parent or teacher to children. From myths and legends, starring warriors like Finn McCool and Cúchulainn, to the more terrifying tales, featuring the Abertach, or the Irish Vampire, the Dullahan, and many others. Irish mythology falls into four different cycles. Each of the cycles, the Mythology Cycle, the Ulster Cycle, the Fenian Cycle, and the Cycles of the Kings, are unique and are filled with different stories. No matter where you are in the world, you will have at least heard of some tales of Ireland. You may not know of the Puka or the Dullahan, but nearly everybody has heard of the Fairy Folk or the Leprechaun, and tonight's subject is nearly as famed and has terrified children for generations, none other than the Herald of Death herself, the Banshee. Before I get into the program proper, I would just like to say a blessing for all of you listening to my words, wherever and whenever that may be. May love and laughter light your days, and warm your heart and home. May good and faithful friends be yours, wherever you may roam. May peace and plenty bless your world, with joy that long endures. May all life's passing seasons bring the best to you and yours. Well, good morning, everyone. I hope that you're doing well wherever you are in the world. I hope that it's starting to get a bit lighter out a bit later in the Northern Hemisphere. I know it's just about time for daylight savings in the U.S., so I hope that you're all doing well, and I hope that you've survived through winter, and hopefully it's warmed up and it's a lot better for you. Now, this episode of The Paranormal Sun is very special to me. For those of you who don't know a lot about JT, about my background and uh, my upbringing, I'm a quarter Irish. My grandfather was a Caldwell. We've always felt a connection to our Irish side. Although, growing up in the U.S., my grandfather really didn't want to talk a whole lot about it. He always thought of himself as American first. And there's nothing wrong with that, but what I'm saying is I didn't hear a lot about Ireland from my grandfather. He was born in the U.S., but he was born way back in 1895, so I'm sure that his mother would have had some tales that she could have told, and I'd say that she probably left Ireland after the famine to come to the U.S. So as far as my personal family, I've always had a deep connection to my Irish bloodline. So out of the four quarters, the Irish is the, the side that I probably feel the most connection to. Now, like a lot of Americans or a lot of foreigners, I've definitely got an idealized vision of Ireland, especially how it may have been 100 years ago or 150 years ago. So I fully get that the Ireland of reality and the Ireland that is portrayed to us in arts and literature and in movies and that are two different things. But it doesn't mean I can't feel a connection to both. Now, first and foremost, to anyone out there, anyone in Ireland, anyone who can speak Irish. I do apologize for any of these place names and the names that I butcher. Obviously, Gaelic was not something that we learned in school, and I've done my best to learn some things through the years, 
And believe it or not, through listening to thousands of hours of Irish folk songs, there are a lot of place names in that that I can pronounce right. But there's definitely some that I don't know because I've never heard of them before. So I do apologize for that in advance. Now, on that Irish family connection note, thank you to everyone who's reached out to give me support and kind words about the anniversary of my mother's passing. And again, like I say, folks, it's one of those things where we've all got things in our life that strike us for whatever reason. They strike us harder than maybe they should or maybe harder than some other things. But uh, I do really appreciate all the kind words and all the words of support that I've had. So thank you from the bottom of my heart very much. I do appreciate it. Now, in that, though, in Irish tradition, after the keening comes the wake. So after you've cried over the person's death, comes the wake, and it's time to celebrate their life. So I'm definitely doing that while we record. I'm having a glass of Guinness. I'm having some Jameson. Uh, and I'll be having some more before we get through the week. Once we get to Wednesday and it's St. Patrick's Day, I'll definitely be sitting back and enjoying myself, having a drink, listening to some music, and watching a movie that, to a lot of people, you'd have a good laugh about, because it is stereotypical. But there is a very true connection in a lot of Irish life of the 1800s in this movie, and it is Darby O'Gill and the Little People. So it's not completely homogenized like a lot of modern movies are. They did get a lot of things right in that as far as Irish legend and tradition and the way that people lived it in the day. So I'll be sitting back and watching that. It always gives me fond memories, and it always reminds me of my mom. Now, my grandfather had red hair, and when I grew my beard out, before it's gotten gray as I've gotten older, my beard was for a long time a very deep, dark red, so... I know that I've got the Irish blood in me, and like I say, I've always felt a real strong connection to it. Growing up, probably our closest real connection was in and around St. Patrick's Day, like I say. Mom always celebrated it, and usually we had that old staple of corned beef and cabbage. And in different parts of Ireland, obviously they have different things, different meals on different days. Now, it's quite sad because I had a book around at one time, and I can't find it anymore. And it was a book, it was just a book of Irish life. It was stories mainly written in the 18th and 1900s about different people in Ireland. And there was one about the celebration of St. Patrick's Day that they were having at this certain time. And it was just talking about all the foods that they ate and the drinking and that. And yeah, you know, it, it was definitely a feast day and definitely something for the people to enjoy. Uh, especially at that time, especially in the 1800s after the potato famine, things were very difficult. So you only got meat uh, kind of far and few between for most families. So having something like that, having something like bacon or having something like uh, salted beef or corned beef, as we call it, you know, it would be really memorable for them and it would be something that they would really enjoy. So I have been asked by a few people in the past, you're so connected with your Irish side and with the, you know, kind of what you feel is Irish culture. What's some of your favorite uh, Irish connections? Some of the things that are Irish, uniquely Irish, or very much a favorite in Ireland or to the Irish culture? Well, of course, with the Irish, you can't get very far away from music, uh, music, literature, food. So white pudding 
is something that is a like black pudding, which is made with blood, but white pudding doesn't have blood in it. So when I could get my hands on some good white pudding, I would make a breakfast on St. Patrick's Day. White pudding and bacon and eggs and mushrooms and all the good stuff. Of course, Guinness. It's a bit of an inside joke. For those of you who don't know, my Facebook profile is actually called Guinness. And I've been a Guinness drinker for a very long time. Now, I've had a few jokes through the years told to me about Guinness. And I fully get it's not everyone's drink, but I've always enjoyed Guinness. And that's what I'm sitting here drinking now. Kilkenny Stout is very good as well, and I'm sure there's many others in Ireland that we don't get overseas, but I've always been a fond Guinness drinker. Now, to tell you a very brief story about James Guinness, the the man who founded Guinness Breweries. Now, if I've got any of this wrong, again, I'm sorry, and to any of the Irish listeners, feel free to correct me if I've got it wrong. But my understanding was that he used to make a certain kind of beer. He wasn't making porter or stout as it is now. And he fell asleep, and he burnt the wheat, and that's why he ended up with this really dark uh, stout. And he went around, and he gave it as a gift to all of his regular patrons, rather than throwing it away. And he gave it gave it to him as a gift to thank them for the patronage for buying beer from him. And then sure enough, when he went around the next week or the week after, whenever it was, to bring them their beer, they said, oh, don't you have any of that other stuff you gave me? You know, everybody loves it. And that's basically how... What we know as Guinness, the Guinness Stout was invented, was basically a man falling asleep and burning burning the ingredients. So anyone who tells you that nothing good ever came of uh, someone who likes to sleep, they're wrong. Tell them about James Guinness and how it basically founded a multi-millionaire family. So as for Irish whiskey, there's lots of fine ones. I haven't got to have a whole lot of them. Jameson's is good. Bushmills is good. There's also a few. There's one uh, which is called Connemara, which I'd like to get a hold of because there's a very famous song about people making moonshine or making whiskey in the hills of Connemara. And then there's also uh, there's another one called Tullamore Dew, which I haven't had, but that's another fairly famous one. And as with all whiskeys, they all have a similar flavor, but you can tell the difference between an Irish whiskey and Scott whiskey. It's definitely two different things, but I enjoy both. As for Irish music, well, so many great Irish bands over the years, but you can't go wrong. If you want real Irish folk music, you can't go wrong with the Dubliners, the Clancy Brothers, of course, and then Luke Kelly, who was another of the great Irish balladeers. And then you've got more recent bands like Thin Lizzy and the Pogues. So I'm sure most people know by now because Thin Lizzy did a cover of it, and then later Metallica did a cover of it. But Whiskey in the Jar is an old Irish folk song that goes back at least 300 years. And then Lizzie covered that song, and then, like I said, Metallica later covered it. And I thought they both did excellent jobs on it. Then Lizzie's also got an excellent song about Ireland called The Emerald. So that's another really good song about uh, back in the days and uh, warfare, people fighting over the provinces of Ireland. And then, of course, you've also got the Pogues. And the Pogues did uh, all kinds of music, but they also did several songs as an homage or a head nod to the Irish folk scene. And I enjoy some of their songs very well. The Sick Bed of Cúchulainn is, is, a, is a very good uh, Pogues kind of folk song if you want to hear something different. 
So all of that, like I say, I enjoy all of it. I've read a lot of, of Irish authors over the years, and it's always something, like I say, that I've enjoyed. I enjoy my connections to Ireland. I, uh, I remember in 2005 when I went to my first All Blacks game here, I rounded up some of my friends. I said I really wanted to go, and I wore an Irish rugby top, which was sacrilege here. Oh, boy, you better back the All Blacks. But, yeah, I wore an Irish uh, rugby top. Still got it to this day, the old one, the TSB Bank one. And I'll be cranking that out for St. Patrick's Day as well. But, uh, yeah, like I said, I've always been proud of my Irish ancestry. I'm proud of all of them. But, like I say, I just have always felt a special connection to my Irish bloodline. Now, one other thing very quickly. Uh, I do dedicate this episode to anyone out there who's got any kind of connection to Ireland. And especially to Angela in Ireland, who's one of my followers on Instagram. And we've had lots of good talks about Irish mythology and some of the stories. And as I say, folks, with many of these things, just because we may think of them as stories and myths, it doesn't mean that somewhere in time there hasn't been a connection to some of these things and that some of them had a good basis in fact. One other thing, again, just thank you everyone for listening, all of you all over the world. The best way to support the show is to put other people onto the show. I've grown a huge audience in India in a very short time, so everyone listening in India, Bangladesh, Nepal, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to me. And I hope tonight you'll learn something different, something about a different culture, as I cover the story of the Banshee from Ireland. So with that all out of the way, folks, we're going to keep it pretty brief as we're going to move into the news of the damned, and then we're going to get into the story of the Banshee. And a gentleman named David Flora, who does a program called Blurry Photos, which I've been listening to for a very long time, every year for St. Patrick's Day, he does a an episode called Slurry Photos because he's drinking. So that's what I thought. Well, that's you can't do much better than, than having a good drink for St. Patrick's Day. So for those of you who may be new to the show, I always do a news segment on just about every episode, and it is called The News of the Damned. It is an homage to a gentleman named Charles Fort who lived in the early 1900s in the U.S., and Charles Fort was one of the first people who started gathering information about things like lights in the sky and ghost ships and cryptids and people vanishing in thin air and all sorts of strange things and itemizing them onto cards and then later gathering these into books and publishing them so that we could all read about these strange and bizarre cases from all over the world. Well, Charles Fort referred to any subject that was ignored or excluded by science as damn data. Therefore, as an homage to Charles Fort, this segment is always the news of the damned. So, folks, just always remember that with the news of the damned, I always put links for all of the articles in the show notes. So if you'd like to go and check out an article yourself, find out more, etc. Now, for this very special episode for The Celtic Sun, I do have a few of your general kind of UFO type stuff and, you know, some other things. But I've also got three from Ireland, three specifically from Ireland to go over. So it's a bit harder because obviously Ireland isn't a massive country compared to a place like the U.S., 
But I do have three very good articles here, I feel. So the first one here is from coasttocoastam.com. And this one is titled $666 Haunted Guitar for Sale. And this is from Tim Banal. It says an individual out of Ohio is selling an acoustic guitar, which they claim is possessed by the spirit of its previous owner, and their asking price is, naturally, $666. The intriguing object has been listed on the online instrument marketplace, Reverb, under the eye-catching title, Haunted Paranormal Ghost Guitar, by someone simply billed as American Vintage and Boutique Music Emporium from the town of New Lebanon. As one may have surmised, the fairly normal-looking guitar comes with quite a story attached to it. In the wildly entertaining ad for the guitar, the current owner explains the instrument originally belonged to a kid that lived on my street when I was growing up, and that he was rumored to be into devil worship, seances, Aleister Crowley, black magic, and other dark endeavors of the spirit world. The seller goes on to claim that this young man, who was purportedly born in June of 1966, passed away at the tender age of 13 under mysterious circumstances, wherein he was allegedly found inexplicably electrocuted with the acoustic guitar atop his body. Continuing to weave a truly fantastic tale, the person selling the piece says that they acquired it from the boy's mother, and since that time, strange activity has occurred in their home. Specifically, they say that I've heard the strings discordantly ring out, despite no one being near the guitar, and that on three occasions, the instrument was placed in a closet, only to later be found sitting on the seller's bed. The decision to sell the instrument arose, they said, after an incident in which the object floated out of a trash can where it had been somberly placed. Likely in recognition of the guitar's spooky condition, the owner is looking for $666 from anyone who is brave enough to tamper with the spirit world and dares to purchase the piece. Truth be told, the seller's story of the instrument's paranormal nature is so colorfully written that it is almost too good to be true, though if that is the case, they deserve credit for crafting such a colorful account and should be the next owner of the piece, or sorry, and should the next owner of the piece be able to tell the tale even remotely as well, it just might be worth the asking price. So yeah, folks, to each their own, but as far as I'm concerned, yeah, I'll have a pass on that. No, thank you. Don't want that in my house. So the next story here is one of my more favored topics, which is hidden, buried, lost treasure. And this one is titled, Treasure Hunters, Press FBI for Answers on Suspicious Pennsylvania Dig. And this is also from Coast to Coast, and also Tim Banal. In the latest twist in a rather contentious legal battle between a father and son treasure hunting team and the federal government, emails obtained by the duo seemingly strengthened their argument that the FBI secretly recovered a long-lost hoard of Civil War gold and are hiding the discovery from the public. The strange saga began back in March of 2018, when federal agents unexpectedly descended upon a Pennsylvania state forest to excavate a spot where Dennis and Kem Parada believed that a legendary bevy of gold bars had been buried after they went missing in the summer of 1863. Given the specificity of where the FBI was digging, it was widely assumed that they were looking for the lost treasure, but the federal government only said at the time that they were investigating a cultural heritage site claiming to have been promised access to the site as the excavation unfolded, the Paradas later expressed misgivings about the whole affair because authorities kept them from observing the project and, 
once it was completed, told them that nothing was found at the spot. Of course they did. Since that time, the treasure hunters have been on a different kind of quest, a, liti a litigious search for proof that the federal government is not being honest about the dig and that, in fact, they had recovered the lost gold. The story reads something of a tipping point this week when it was revealed that an attorney representing the Paradas had, by way of a court order, obtained emails from the FBI concerning the 2018 event, and in one of the missives, which was marked confidential, an assistant U.S. attorney wrote to an official in Pennsylvania that the FBI was looking for a cache believed to be in the neighborhood of 3 by 5 by 8 feet to 5 by 5 by 8 feet. Further confirming the nature of the dig, another exchange between the two saw the state official specifically ask on what basis the Office of the United States Attorney asserts that the gold it found belongs to the federal government. By virtue of these newly obtained documents, it would seem that the FBI's vague claim that they were simply looking into a cultural heritage site has been upended. Additionally, in light of how secretive the federal government has been about what took place in the Pennsylvania forest back in 2018, the treasure hunter's suspicions that perhaps the gold was actually found and the discovery kept it from the public appears to be more plausible than some might have previously believed. To that end, at a virtual press conference held on Wednesday, Dennis Parada reportedly did not mince words, declaring that the FBI's account of what occurred does not hold up anymore, and that the question now is how much they found and where did it go. The treasure hunter's attorney indicated that they no longer believe that the treasure is located in the Pennsylvania State Park, and that instead, the truth about its fate may be metaphorically buried somewhere in a sea of paperwork being held by the federal government. As such, he has called on the U.S. Department of Justice to release a whopping 2,400 documents concerning the dig, which inexplicably remains sealed. Significant tax dollars were spent on this venture, he said. The public has a right to know how those tax dollars were spent. For their part, a spokesman for the FBI has said the agency unequivocally rejects any claims or speculation that the dig yielded any treasure, suggesting that this epic hunt is a long way from over, though it, was, it will likely be conducted via legal filings rather than with shovels. Well, folks, I'm a bit of a... Uh, I guess I'm a bit of a cynic, but I've got no doubt that the U.S. government and other governments the world over are happy to lay their hands on any wealth they can find. And if they can bamboozle a private citizen, all the better, because they'll just claim that it's ours, we have a right to it. The same thing definitely happened in the Philippines as part of Yamashita's gold. It's happened elsewhere. I've got no, no doubt that there were lots of treasures recovered during and after World War II by the U.S. government and used to fund things like the CIA. I, I've got no doubt in my personal mind. Now, hopefully this does get sorted out, but I'm not shocked at all. I mean, just go back and listen to the Victorio Peak case that I did. I don't know for sure that there was treasure there and everything else, but if there was, it would just be the perfect explanation of why no one can find it there anymore, is that the Air Force or some other agency with the U.S. Air Force's permission and help just swooped in and basically took off with it. I would have no doubt if that came out, I wouldn't be shocked at all. So, folks, we will watch this, and hopefully it has a positive conclusion for the father and son. So we've got the last one here from Coast to Coast AM, and this one is titled Eerie Figure Filmed in Swedish Forest. 
And this is by Tim Banal as well. A puzzling piece of footage filmed in a Swedish forest appears to show some kind of figure briefly pop out from behind a tree before disappearing from view. The eerie scene was reportedly filmed last week by Ellen Melbergsted as she cut through a patch of wilderness in the city of Gothenburg on her way to a bus stop. During her walk, the woman recorded a video for Instagram wherein she updated her friends on the latest happenings in her life. Little did she know that, at that very moment, she was filming something that would stay with her far longer than her quick shout-out through the woods would last. Sorry, her quick shortcut. That's because after Mel Berkstead posted the recording and got onto the bus, she began receiving an unusual amount of messages from concerned friends who had seen her video. They pointed out that in the footage, the relevant portion of which can be seen below, an eerie interloper seemingly sporting a ghostly white visage appears to furtively look at her from behind a tree in the forest and then quickly hide its face. Bewildered by what she had filmed, (laughs) Melbergstead subsequently uploaded it to YouTube and also shared it on Reddit in the hopes that someone could identify the anomaly. Although she offered up the possibility that the figure could have been a ghost or perhaps a supernatural entity, Melbergstead stressed that she is not a believer in the paranormal and therefore ultimately concluded that the oddity was an owl. Well, there's a tie-in, folks. Again, there's a little synchronicity. Something I didn't expect. That will be just remember that. She thought that that was an owl. Just remember that for uh, as we go into the main topic. That said, Melbergstead was far from certain in that assessment and also put forward the unsettling scenario that perhaps she had narrowly avoided some ne'er-do-well who was hiding in the forest with mischief on their mind. Can you decipher what the woman filmed during her walk? So, folks, uh, through the magic of editing, I'm just going to stop recording and watch the video, and then I'll let you know what I think. Well, folks, that didn't take long. It's one of those blink-and-you-miss-it videos, but I'll tell you, it's pretty damn creepy as far as I'm concerned. It literally looks like something heard her walking through these woods and talking and poked its head around the tree to see who it was and then put its head back behind the tree. Me, personally, I'm not going to say it's impossible, but I would say it's 99.95% no chance that that's an owl, in my humble opinion. It's pretty freaky. If it would have just popped its head out or flown by, that's one thing, but it like popped its head out and then it popped its head back. And it was at the height of like, you know, uh, off the top of my head, five or six feet tall, kind of like a human height. So, yeah, it was pretty freaky. Hopefully, it was just somebody trying to have a bit of uh, a prank with her. Hopefully, it wasn't any entity out there because it was pretty freaky, to tell you the truth. Okay, folks, so we're going to move on to the first of the Irish stories here that I've got. And this one comes from the Belfast Telegraph. And this is a bit of an old one, but it's about a UFO sighting last year in Ireland. And it says, UFO mystery deepens as Met Office rejects balloon explanation. And this is from Christopher Woodhouse. And this came out on the 20th of July, 2020. A UFO filmed over County Down Village was not a weather balloon, the Met Service has said. A woman who captured footage of the object over Analong on July 8th passed it to the Northern Ireland UFO Society or NIUFOS, which is investigating the sighting. The round and gray UFO moved through the sky from north to south at a time when the wind in the area was blowing from the east, 
suggesting it could not have been a weather balloon. In response to a NUFOS query, the Met Office said it doubted the object was a radio sonde, the device carried by such balloons. A radio sonde was launched from Castor Bay Auto Sonde near Loch Ness at 12.15 p.m. on July 8, 2020, a statement read. At 1.15 p.m., this radio sonde had traveled almost due east to position 54.423 minus 5023 at an altitude of just under 18 kilometers. Google Maps indicates that this is about 20 kilometers off the coast in the Irish Sea and 70 kilometers from the filming location. The balloon pass stayed, sig- stayed significant, significantly to the north of the filming location throughout the ascent. The weather balloons that we use at Castor Bay are almost all off-white in color and spherical, with very small white instrument packages suspended far below. The object in the video is too unclear to identify, but we doubt a phone camera could see such a relatively small object at such a great distance and height from the reported filming location. As such, we doubt that the object seen could be the Castor Bay radio sound. Nefos founder Chris McMurray told Sunday Life he had received a report of similar sighting from a woman in Kilkeel, about five miles from Analong, a few weeks beforehand. He added that his group intended to visit the area, which has a record of strange phenomena, next month to investigate further. The incidents were not the only records, sorry, were not the only reports of unexplained aerial activity this year. On the night of 8th of May, Ileana Draven reported a bright object moving in the air over her home in Carnlow, County Antrim. It came after other reports of lights above the village. Miss Draven said she saw a black ball above the light, and in a video of the sighting can be heard to say, It's falling. In February, filming of the BBC drama Bloodlands, starring Jimmy Nesbitt, sparked a UFO alert over the Ards Peninsula. The crew of an aircraft flying from London to Belfast asked air traffic control about a big ball of light as they passed over the area. It's believed to be to have been caused by a light on a cherry picker used to represent the moon during the filming at Castle Ward. Okay, so again, just goes to show folks that UFOs are sighted all over the world. I've already covered a few cases from Ireland just in the news of the damned. But yeah, it, it happens everywhere. And here's another case that happened in 2020 and still, as far as I know, hasn't been explained. Okay, so folks, I was slightly wrong when I was talking about earlier that I had two, three stories from Ireland. Sorry. So they are from Irish sites, but one of them is based in Scotland. And that's the next one here. And it's quite interesting. Both of these articles are about old stories of things that happened in the 30s. So the first one here is from Fortean, Ireland, and both of these stories, as a matter of fact, are from Fortean, Ireland. And this one is titled The Beastie in the Walls, and this was published on the 26th of July, 2020. So it says, Fortean, Ireland is inherently incredibly parochial. So in an effort to break away from this and hopefully help me deal with my lockdown cabin fever, I've decided to take up Take us on a virtual trip in time and space. This week we're in March 1934, in Tarvis, a small village in Aberdeenshire in northeastern Scotland, where Mr. and Mrs. Wilkie, a couple in their 80s, along with their nine-year-old granddaughter, Bunty Ross, have been living since November of 1933. Shortly after moving into Gateside Croft, the Wilkes began to hear a voice coming from the walls. At first they were alarmed. 
but soon they were on conversational terms with their unexpected lodger. The following exchange between Mr. Wilkie and the Beastie, as it became known, has reported was reported in Dundee's The Courier and Advertiser. Mr. Wilkie, what are you? Have you four legs? Voice, I. Mr. Wilkie, have you a tail? Voice, no, but I have a beak. In addition to answering the Wilkie's questions, the Beastie, which spoke in a broad Buchan dialect, could repeat the alphabet, count to ninety, say the Lord's Prayer, and would sing A Bicycle Made for Two, and the hymn Jesus Loves Me. When news of the Wilkie's strange and talented ghost, for that's how it was being reported, reached the village and beyond, it brought a steady stream of visitors to their home. The beastie wasn't shy, and it seems no one left the croft without having heard it speak. It could be quite direct and would often call out anyone it felt was asking too much about its identity. For the most part, though, the beastie had a wicked sense of humor, as illustrated by this exchange with the local curiosity seeker. Woman. I'll need to be going down the road now. Voice. And I'll come home with you. Deed. You will no do that. At that, she grabbed her hat and coat and ran out of the house. While the newspapers were reporting this as a haunting, and it seems that the Wilkies believed that something supernatural was going on, according to the courier and advertiser, the general opinion is that a trick is being played on the old folks. But who would play such a mean but convincing and entertaining trick on an elderly couple? Within a few days of the beastie making the news, it suddenly stopped talking. The Evening Telegraph of 26 March reported, The voice died on Tuesday night, and the family here are at a loss to explain the reason. It would be another two days before it was revealed that the voice had stopped because the mystery had been solved. The voice belonged to Bunty, the, Wilk the Wilkie's granddaughter. Exactly how this was discovered is not clear. There are at least three accounts, and while each account credits one of Bunty's teachers with solving the mystery, they vary in how the teacher made the discovery. According to the Evening Telegraph, the teacher became suspicious during a reading lesson after Bunty lapsed unconsciously into the voice. The teacher noticed something unusual about her voice and became convinced that the little girl was a ventriloquist, explained the telegraph. When questioned, Bunty, a bright youngster, admitted she was the voice. Another newspaper, for which I failed to note any details, claimed that the voice had followed Bunty to school, and while the class was being entertained by the beastie, one of the teachers was closely watching Bunty. The account, the account that appeared in the Aberdeen Press and Journal on the 29th of March seemed to suggest that something more troubling than a practical joke was going on, a child in genuine distress, perhaps. When she first attended Barthel Chapel School some months ago, she was a fluent speaker and reader. Last week, however, she developed a serious stammer, some of her words being entirely incoherent. In consequence of inquiries then made, it was found that she possessed a ventriloquial voice. Following Bunty's confession, other details began to emerge that appeared to confirm her guilt. The Aberdeen Press and Journal reported on a separate incident that happened one day when Bunty and a classmate were walking home from school. Seemingly, a voice began to talk to them from the ditch at the side of the road. When the classmate became frightened, Bunty told her it was just a trick. And it seems that the locals, well, most of them, were now claiming that they'd never been fooled by Bunty's antics. Two of those locals were Mrs. Bonner and Mrs. Sinclair, both of whom had made multiple visits to the croft to hear the voice. According to Bonner and Sinclair, the beastie never spoke until Bunty was in bed, and when it spoke, Bunty always had her face covered, with a book, a newspaper, or a knitting pattern, and her head could be seen to move as the beastie spoke. 
Anybody wis have ken kent it was her, said Mrs. Sinclair. So was Bunty responsible for the voice? If so, why did she do it? How did she do it? Unfortunately, Bunty's willingness to talk about the voice ended her with her confession. She never spoke of it again. On trying to get her to talk about it, a reporter from the Aberdeen Press and Journal wrote, she simply smiled, but would not speak a word. She would not even reveal how she came to use her unnatural voice, but it is almost certain that she never saw a professional ventriloquist on the stage. Eleanor Castle, one of the Aberdeen Press and Journal, got the same response from Bunty, and though the girl was happy to spend time with the journalist, she would not talk about the voice. However, spending time with Bunty did give Castell some valuable insight into the girl's incredibly lonely life. She told me she had a cat, a black one, and its name was Topsy, but this was her only playmate. There were no schoolfellows who came to share her romps. She spent all her spare time with, her, with the old couple. Despite having made a full confession to responsible persons, there were some, including her grandparents, who refused to believe that Bunty was behind the voice. Bunty hide nothing to do with it, says Wilkie, Mr. Wilkie told Castell. I tell ye is was a beastie that was ahin the wall. Lizzie Stott, who worked as a on a neighboring farm, also firmly believed that Bunty was innocent. In fact, Castell noted that nothing would shake her, Stott, from her conviction that a supernatural agency had been at work. So why were Wilkes, why, why were the Wilkies and Miss Stott so confident that Bunty was innocent? It seems that they had all had encounters with the beastie at the croft while Bunty was away at school. Yeah, that'd do it. And that, to the best of my knowledge, was the end of the Tarvis beastie story. I love this story. I pieced it together from newspaper coverage. But if you know of any other resources, please get in touch. So thank you very much. Uh, and I don't have the author's name here, but obviously, like I say, it's the owner of the 40 in Ireland site. An interesting little story there. And again, just goes to show how inventive children can be. And yet there are people who, the people involved in the case said that there was no way it was her because she was at school while they heard the voice. So very interesting. And again, it just goes to show one of those old things that they talk about um, poltergeists and other spirits being drawn to juvenile women. So maybe it was a poltergeist that was hanging around her. But I do find it interesting if that was the case that there's no word of it being heard after then. So anyway, interesting little story, and I hope you enjoyed that one. And now I've got one more for the evening. So here we go with the last one, folks. And this one is also, as I say, from the 40 in Ireland website. And this one says, Kill Hill, Volume 1. In November of 1934, after news reached the Dairy Journal of a mystery light that had been appearing with an alarming frequency over Kill Hill, a townland near Letterkenny in County Donegal, they sent a man to investigate. A lone reporter? Standing on a lonely hillside waiting for a strange light to appear? You could be forgiven for thinking it was Keel, meaning John Keel, the famous author of the Mothman Prophecies and many other UFO-related topics. The story of the regular nightly appearance of a dazzling light has aroused a good deal of interest and excitement in the Letterkenny neighborhood. The district to which the mysterious illumination appears to be the visitant is Kill Hill, in the lonely countryside connecting the town with Trenta. On hearing the remarkable story, our representative this week set out to try and obtain some first-hand information for himself. He was reliably told of a particular spot in the vicinity of Glencar Waterworks 
from which the light could be clearly seen almost nightly, at frequent intervals, immediately after nightfall. He went to the spot, and whilst awaiting eventualities, discussed the matter with the youth whom he casually met. What he heard fully bore out the story of a seemingly unearthly visitation, which it appeared began to manifest itself as far back as two years ago. The light had become such a common spectacle in that district, he said, that people had now practically ceased to comment on it. This place is two miles from the spot where the light is claimed to be located. Our representative waited for almost 20 minutes, by which time he had got a little impatient, as well as a trifle skeptical of the awesome tale he had heard of the light. The youth assured him that the light had been brilliantly visible the night before, and he seemed genuinely surprised that up to that hour, 9.20 p.m., it had not yet shone forth. In the meantime, the youth was called away, and our reporter was on the point of abandoning the quest for the light, at least until some other occasion. He had actually proceeded some hundred yards in the homeward direction when, with drastic suddenness, a brilliant light revealed itself at the, pre at the precise spot that had been indicated to him. It seemed to be a highly powerful light, casting an extensive reflection and remaining for the most part stationary. At times, it became partially obscured, then disappeared, then reappeared, then moved fitfully to either side, then again became lost in the darkness of the night. Residents of the Kill Hill District, questioned on the subject, conveyed the impression of belief in the mysterious nature of the light. It was stated that certain parties on the road became become confronted with it, and that eventually, after pursuing a rapid and devious course and assuming various proportions, it promptly vanished from sight. Others acknowledged having walked that particular road at all hours of the night, but never seeing anything unusual. A few people chose to ridicule the idea of there being anything unnatural in the light, for which they assigned explanations, most of which, however, seemed to be unreasonable and far-fetched. It is only within the last week that the story of the Kill Hill illumination has become generally known in the town, and now it is frequent and animated subject of discussion and controversy. Numbers of people have expressed a determination to try and establish, establish definitely the authenticity or otherwise of the story by going to the actual spot at midnight and other hours of the night. As it is, the mystery is, well, still a mystery. So, folks, that's a very interesting one. And again, it just goes to show, I mean, I covered it in some of the Pennsylvania stories that I told you. I've covered it in the Illinois stories. I've covered it in various other things. It seems like every corner of the globe has got something like this, some little story, something that sets it apart, something that people don't recognize as being man-made or easily explained anyway. And I find it quite interesting that this back in 1934, this was really before the day of widespread UFO sightings. I mean, yeah, you did have the airship sightings in the late 1890s, but many people said those were all hoaxes anyway. So I find it quite interesting that this happened, and I'd never heard of this, obviously, uh, being in a small neighborhood in Ireland, and a very interesting one nonetheless. So if I do find out more, if I find any other articles or anything like that about it, I will let you know. So that's it for the news of the damned for this episode, folks. Now, I, I do have something, though, that I'm going to seed in here just after I finish up. I've got a very supportive friend who happens to do a podcast called Boo My Dad Says, and his name is John. He lives in Tennessee, and he's very supportive. He's been supportive. He's checked up on me several times when I've not been doing so well, so I wanted to make sure that I gave 
John a chance to tell you in his own words why you should go and check out his program. If you're a lover of the paranormal and the unexplained like me, I'm sure you'll enjoy it. And John has recently been doing some episodes where he's gone out in the field and went to some of these places like New Orleans. So, John, take it away. Tell the people all about your show. Ghosts, UFOs, cryptids, all the things that go bump in the night. Join John and Becca as they explore the world of the paranormal on Boo, My Dad Says. Check us out every Wednesday on your favorite podcast provider for a little bit of history, a little bit of mystery, and a whole lot of weird. Keep away! Keep away! It's a dark night in rural Ireland, and the forests are filled with mist. A blood-curdling wail slices open the silence, and it is followed by more cries. You might think that the anguished cries are coming from a dying person, and in a way you would be right. These are the cries of the ghostly banshee, meant as a warning that death approaches. The banshee's wail is a powerful message. It can be heard for miles and always chills the hearts of the people who hear it. A banshee? from the Old Irish meaning Woman of the Fairy Mound, or Fairy Woman, is a female spirit in Irish folklore who heralds the death of a family member, usually by wailing, shrieking, or keening. Her name is connected to the mythologically important tumuli, or mounds, that dot the Irish countryside, which are known as Sheeta, or She in Old Irish. She is known in Ireland by many names, Hag of the Mist, Little Washerwoman, and Hag of the Black Head, among others. She was a fairy woman, a spirit linked to the realm of the dead, and if you spotted her, you'd be praying for the safety of your family, because it was likely that one of them would be soon joining her there. The Banshee is almost universally depicted as a woman, however in extremely rare cases, a male can become a Banshee. First written accounts of the creature date as far back as 1380, and mentions of the Banshee can even be found in some Norman literature from the time. There are also similar tales of witch-like creatures signaling impending doom in Scottish and Welsh mythology too. The Alsai are variously believed to be the survivals of pre-Christian Gaelic deities, spirits of nature, or the ancestors. Sightings of banshees have been reported as recently as 1948. When most people think of a banshee, they imagine a floating, spectral figure, wailing, and generally being extremely frightening. You may also be aware of the old belief which states that banshees are harbingers of death. Here is the full story of the banshee. She can appear in a number of guises, as a young, beautiful woman, a stately matron, or as an ugly, frightening hag. When seen, she is wearing the clothes of a countrywoman, hooded cloak, usually white, 
but sometimes gray, brown, green, or red. While not always seen, her mourning cries can be heard usually at night when someone is about to die. Those who claim to have seen her describe long hair, which she runs a comb through, similar to tearing the hair out in anguish. For this reason, some people would never pick up a comb lying on the ground for fear of being taken away by fairies. In Cornwall, she is said to have long black teeth, and in the Scottish Islands, very long breasts. Legends claim that those who try to track or capture the Banshee will be cursed, and the Wailing Fairy's power is no mere matter. Her curses are passed down through generations. Thomas Riley of Galway tried to catch a Banshee, but died within seconds of the incident, and his son Michael inherited the family farm, which never prospered. Michael's children were feeble-minded, and their father died of cancer. Those who pick up a banshee's silver comb, or try to steal the comb, or her beetle, will suffer similar fates. According to the myths of Clare and Galway, the banshee can glide quicker than human feet can walk. In County Mayo, the banshee hops like a magpie, and can run faster than a horse at full stretch. So how can one protect themselves from a banshee? Well, first and foremost is to remember that the Banshee is a fairly pacifistic creature, and usually death does not follow in its wake. However, it can be harmed, it is believed, by cold-forged iron. Salt repels the Banshee, as it is considered to be pure and an anathema to the denizens of the spirit world. Any other methods of protecting oneself from the Banshee are unknown. If the Banshee was once human, not all Banshees are ghosts, mind you, she may be able to be put to rest by finding her earthly remains, and then salting and burning them. Banshee men don't wail publicly since it is not accepted as a manly thing, but the urge to wail is strong when a premonition happens. Both men and women banshees have dark circles under their eyes. Generally, they will have a scar on their head. In yet more stories, she is referred to as the ghost of a murdered woman, or a woman who died in childbirth. The three typical guises of the Banshee may represent the three aspects of the Celtic goddess of war and death. Occasionally they took the form of a crow, stoat, hare, or weasel, typical animals associated with witchcraft in Ireland. Many believe that she can in fact take on any of the above forms and change from one to the other as she sees fit. It is believed by many that she only appears to select numbers of families, namely the five main Irish families, the O'Neills, O'Connors, O'Briens, O'Grady's, and Kavanaugh's, although this list varies depending on who is telling the story. Coincidentally, I heard of an O'Connor who had a brush with the Banshee. He was cycling between Ballylongford and Tarbet in County Kerry when he heard the cries of the Banshee by the ruins of the Lislawton Abbey. The great O'Brien family were said to be frequented by a Banshee with the name of Evil, Sounds a bit too much like evil, doesn't it? Who ruled 25 other banshees that followed her wherever she went. This gave rise to the belief that if several banshees were heard at once, it meant the imminent death of someone very powerful. The O'Donnell family's banshee apparently lived on a rock overlooking the sea at Dunluce Castle. She cried not specifically for one death, but for all of the misfortunes the family had ever had and ever will have. The O'Neill's banshee would cry out from the Coil Utak, or Ulster Wood, and could be heard from the other side of Loch Ney, where their castle stood. Her name was Maeveen, and she even had a special room set aside for her in the castle. 
There are two contradictory reasons why the Banshee followed these great families. Some believe that she did so purely to bring misery on them with her incessant wailing, while others believe she was a friend of the family who was utterly distraught at their having lost someone they loved. The Banshee is one of the more intimidating fairies. She is a fairy woman who appears at the sight of an imminent death in the middle of the night and lets out a chilling, high-pitched wail. As with all mythological stories and figures, she also appears in Scottish, Welsh, Norse, and even Native American folklore in many different forms and doing many different death-related things. Occasionally, she is also known as Binchayente, or the Crying Woman. Her cry seems to be the subject of much debate. In Leinster, it is said to be so shrill that it shatters glass. Further north in County Tyrone, she sounds more like two boards being struck together, while in County Kerry, her call is low, pleasant singing, and on Raithlin Island, as a thin, screeching sound, somewhat between the wail of a woman and the moan of an owl. Whatever she sounds like, everyone agrees that she can be heard from a great distance. Some report hearing her cry for several nights in a row before a death occurred, while others say they heard her just once on the night of the death. Her cry rises and falls and lasts for at least a few minutes, varying in intensity. The hateful banshee is said to announce itself in different ways, sometimes by groaning and other times by wailing or a truly blood-curdling scream. The cry of the banshee has been compared to a woman suffering an unimaginable death. Banshees have also been said to make their presence known by the scratching at a window pane or by making a terrific crashing noise. They can be heard also chuckling sometimes. There have been alleged incidents when the banshee cried for a person who was in perfect health but was found dead within a week from some freak accident. The majority of her visits are paid at night, with a small few taking place at noon. The banshee was usually thought to have one, once been a normal woman who enjoyed life, was incredibly beautiful, and radiated happiness. But some great sorrow overcame her at some point in her life, and she became a haggard old woman. She was seemingly very wary of mortals, and would disappear at the first sight of any human activity. In fact, she didn't seem to enjoy the company of anyone, mortal or not, and traveled as a solitary fairy. When the banshee moved from place to place, witnesses have heard a fluttering sound, similar to birds flying. When she disappeared, all that would be left behind was a cloud of mist. There are several purported banshee chairs around Ireland, wedge-shaped rocks where she would sit and cry for general misfortunes, if there was no death to be attended to, that is. When a family emigrated, legend has it the banshee would follow, or if she didn't, she would stay at the family's seat and lament their leaving there. Now, here are some famous stories for you. This one is from a folklore survey of County Clare by Thomas Johnson Westrup. Above the Shannon Gorge, overlooking a beautiful mass of mountains, the southern arm of Loch Derg, and the river and Killaloe with its wares, rises the great brown and purple bluff of Crag Lee. Above the low earthworks and mound of the stones that mark the ninth century fort of Prince Lochna ascends a rough lane. Further on the east flank, a little well, Torberevil, gushes out from under a low rock amid the ferns, and on the west side, up a lonely valley, a long-forgotten battlefield, Crogliath, where shields were cleft. In one of Brian Baru's earlier combats with the Norsemen, rises a high crag called Crag and Evil. The names of both Well and Crag commemorate the tutelary spirit of the House of Cass, Abe Hill, 
or more correctly, Abhin, the lovely one, once it may be, the goddess of the house. On Good Friday, A.D. 1014, Brian Baru, the aged monarch of all Aaron, knelt in his tent praying for victory. When the battle raged over the low ridge now crowded by the houses of northern Dublin and on to the weirs of Clontarf, news came that his brave son's standard had fallen, and his page retreated him, entreated him to ride back to the camp. O oh God, thou boy, cried Brian, retreat becomes us not, and I myself, I know that I shall not depart alive, for Abhil, or Cragliath, came to me last night, and she told me that I should be killed today. How many centuries of faith lay between the king's fatalism? Who can say? As the Gauls worshipped another banshee, Catabdova, as their war goddess, so before the baptism of King Carinthin, first Christian prince of the house, around A.D. 430, the ancestors of the Dalcassians may have worshipped Ebhin on her holy hill, and her equally lovely sister Ain, crowned with meadowsweet on the tamer mound of Nocony. Whether if so, they found her already enthroned at Cragley on their conquest of the district, or whether the conquered Lugod consecrated the mountains to his patroness, it is now impossible to guess. Abhil, as Banshee, held her own. We find her even usurping the place of the Sibyl, in translation of the Dis Ari, an unwanted companionship with King David, and she was a commonplace of local Thenodes during the 8th and even 19th century, 18th and 19th century. In the lake below Rathblamic in Inchiquin, she has, down to recent years, been seen with the 25 other banshees of Clare that call her their queen, washing clothes before any impending disasters. The next appearance of banshee in local history is of a very different spirit three centuries later. The Catherine Thornblue, or Triumphs of Torlu, was written probably about A.D. 1350 by Sean McCraith, the hereditary historian. It contains accounts of three spirit women, one, the sovereignty of Aaron, being of surpassing loveliness, and the two others, if not the same, dismal and water-dismal, of loathsome hideousness. The hags, however, probably survive, while the sovereignty has perished. Bronach, the sorrowful or dismal one of Sien Born, was known as the Hag of Blackhead, from the modern name of the older Sien, or Rin, of Burin. She was in full repute in 1839, and I have heard of her vaguely about 1885 or 1887. In August 1317, she was able to appear in the dark before sunrise and foretell destruction by words or hideous action. The supporters of Prince Merchad, O'Brien, then absent in Dublin, under his brother Dermot, invaded the territory of his rival, Prince Docknad O'Brien. The latter got together an army, even the man in the, in the subterrain of a fort being summoned and marched round the side of the modern village of Ballyvon, the foe having sheltered in Corcumro Abbey, in the nook of the Bear Hills some miles to the northwest. Approaching Loch Rosca, still known as Rask, they looked on the shining mirror, and there they saw the monstrous and distorted form of a lone ancient hag that stooped over the bright loch shore. She was thatched with elf locks, foxy gray and rough like leather, and matted and like long sea rack, a bossy, wrinkled, ulcerated brow. The hairs of her eyebrows, like fish hooks, bleared watery eyes, 
peered with malignant fire between red and flame lids. She had a great blue nose, flattened and wide, livid lips, and a stubbornly beard. The writer adds detail on detail, some ninety in all, many too disgusting to copy here. The hag was washing human limbs and heads with a gory weapons and clothes, till all the lake was defiled with blood, brains, and floating hair. Donchard spoke at last. What is your name and race, and whose kin are those maltreated dead? She replied, I'm Bronach of Burin, of the Tutha de, de Danan. This slaughter heap is of your army's heads. Your own is in the middle. The angry men raised their javelins, but she rose on the wind, yelling more and more words of woe till she vanished. Heed her not, said Donchad. She is a friendly Bodok of Clan Turok, his opponents. The army hurried on to the ridge of the abbey, where Donchad and all of his kindred, save one brother, were slain before evening. Not to the Irish alone did the Banshee foretell ruin. In May 1318, Richard de Clare, leader of the Normans, was marching to what he supposed would be an easy victory over the Odace of Dysert. The English came to the glittering running water of fish-containing Fergus, where they saw a horrible bedlam washing armor and rich robes, till the red gore churned and splashed through her hands. Calling on an Irish ally to question her, de Clare heard that the armor and clothes were of the English and few would escape immolation. I am the water doleful one. I lodge in the green fairy mounds, or she of the land. But I am of the tribes of hell. Thither I invite you. Soon we shall be dwellers in one country. Next day, declare his son, and nearly all his English troops, lay dead upon the fields near the fort of Dysert for miles over the country in their flight. The belief of the early 11th and 14th centuries is still extant, for local legend near Dysert tells how Ibhil and twenty-five banshees washed blood-stained clothes in Rath Lake before Clarigmore de Clare fell, and that they still do so when mischief is afoot. For nearly three hundred years, there is no other Clare banshee tale, till the famous one of 1642 in the memoirs of Lady Fanshawe, published in 1665. It is so well known that a brief abstract will suffice. Her ladyship stayed with some of the O'Briens, she was sleeping in a room, of which the window overhung water at some height, at a castle, perhaps Bunrati or Castle Lake. She was awakened by a horrible scream, and saw a girl outside the window. The apparition was pale, rather handsome, and with her reddish hair hanging disheveled over her shoulders. After some time, the unwelcome visitor vanished, with other ghastly shrieks. In the morning, Lady Fanshawe, telling her tale, was told of the death of a relative of the family, whose illness had been concealed from her. The spirit was that of the peasant wife of a former owner of the castle, drowned in the moat by her husband, and of evil omen to his descendants. The next story, I understand, is that of the Ross Lewins. It has been traced it, it has been traced to a daughter of Jane Ross Lewin, one of the girls who saw the banshee. It related to Jane's father, Harrison Ross Lewin of Fort Fergus, who probably died in 1776, as his will dated November 1775, was proved in March 1777, but it has here, hereto been unable to verify the circumstances or the place of his death. Mr. Ross Lewin had gone to Dublin on business, the journey at that time taking five days, and the several stages being Limerick, Nenach, Montreth, Kildare, and Dublin. In his absence, the young people went to a friend's house for the evening. The road passed an old church, 
or a Kilchrist, which was unenclosed, standing in an open field. As the party returned under bright moonlight, they were startled by loud keening and wailing from the direction of the ruin. Coming in sight, all clearly saw a little old woman with long white hair and a black cloak running to and fro on the top of the sidewall, clapping her hands and wailing. The young men, leaving the girls together on the road, sent some of their number to watch each end of the building, and the remainder entered and climbed up on the wall. The apparition vanished as they approached the church, and after a careful search, could not be found. The party, thoroughly frightened, hurried home and found their mother in even greater terror. She had been sitting in the window when a great raven flapped three times at the glass. And, while she was telling them this, the bird again flew against the window. Some days later, news arrived from Dublin that Ross Lewin had died suddenly on the very evening of the apparition and the omen. It is curious that an English family, no matter how long settled in Ireland, should have acquired the ministration of a banshee. But besides the Ross Lewins, both the Stammers and the Westrups were so endowed in Clare. The Westrups had also death warnings in the shape of a white owl and the headless coach, or the coach de bar. This bird last appeared, it is said, before a death in 1909, but it would be more convincing if it appeared at places where the white owl does not nest and fly out every night. The Banshee has been conspicuously absent of later years, although on the death of the late John Westrup at Eddie Flynn in 1866, keening and weird lamentations, probably of some of the country folk who held him in deep affection, were heard the same night by the servants and some of the family. When Mrs. Stammer died at Stammer Park Innes in January of 1883, the Banshee and Death Coach were also supposed to have been heard, though far more satisfactory explanations of the noises were forthcoming. The popular belief in Clare is that each leading Irish race had a banshee. Evil, the banshee of the Royal O'Briens, ruling over 25 other banshees, always attendant on her progresses. The stream from Cathermion to Do, the Dalek, was called the Banshee's Brook, and when, as sometimes happens after an unusually dry summer, the water gets red from iron scum, everyone is on the alert to hear the rustling flight of the banshee not apparently evil, and her attendance through the air. In the prevailing suspense, someone generally succeeds, and then there is unrest and fear until a death removes the uncertainty. There are many other modern tales of banshees. Mr. Casey of Ruin heard a banshee cry at the death of his father. The late Dr. McNamara of Corofin was similarly honored. Indeed, when his family lived at Bally Markahan near Quinn, there were numerous authentic instances recorded. The Corofin Banshees, however, did not lag behind the age by maintaining aristocratic prejudices, for one at least used to sit near the crossroad leading to the workhouse and foretell the deaths of the poor inmates. The most recent visit of Banshee told to me was in 1905 and is sadly tame with the stories of McRaith and Lady Fanshawe. Some scattered cottages form a sort of suburb to Newmarket on Fergus at Temporary Lake, or Turlock, called Loch Geish. The inhabitants were greatly alarmed by the loud and ghastly wailing of some unknown being on several successive nights. Local panic spread, and few ventured out after dark. Had any tragedy happened, the reputation of the Banshee would have rested on a rock of belief for another generation, but nothing occurred, and it is now doubted whether it was a Banshee at all. So there, folks, you have several instances of banshees sighted throughout history in Ireland. And 
several cases of them foretelling doom, not only for singular people and families, but oftentimes leaders and entire armies. So you can see why this is such a powerful myth and legend rooted in Irish lore and why it's so hard to dispel over the years. Now, for those of you who've been listening for a while, you'd know that I did another episode about Ireland and specifically on High Brazil, and that was Season 2, Episode 12. Well, you'll remember I read from there a chapter from a book called Irish Wonders, and you can go back there and find a link to it if you'd like to read a bit more. And now I've got the entry from Irish Wonders here about the Banshee. The Irish have the reputation of being grossly superstitious. They are not a whit more so than the peasantry of England, France, or Germany, nor scarcely as much addicted to superstitious beliefs and fancies as the lower class of the Scottish Highlanders. The Irish imagination is, however, so lively as to endow the legends of the Emerald Isles with an individuality not possessed by those of most other nations. While the Irish command of language presents the creatures of Iberian fancy in a garb so vividly real and yet so fantastically original as to make an impression, sometimes exceedingly startling, of the creatures of the Irish imagination, some are humorous, some grotesque, and some awe-inspiring, even to sublimity. And chief among the last class is the weird wailing banshee that sings by night her mournful cry, giving notice to the families she attends that one of its members is soon to be called to the spirit world. The name of this dreaded attendant is variously pronounced as Banshee, Banshai, and Banshee, being translated by different scholars. The female fairy, the woman of peace, the lady of death, the angel of death, the white lady of sorrows, the nymph of the air, and the spirit of the air. The Banshee is quite distinct from the Fierce, or Shifra, the man of peace, the latter bringing good tidings and singing a joyful lay near the house when unexpected good fortune is to befall any or all of its inhabitants. The banshee is really a disembodied soul, that of one who in life was strongly attached to the family or who had good reason to hate all its members. Thus, in different instances, the banshee's song may be inspired by opposite motives. When the banshee loves those whom she calls, the song is a low, soft chant, giving notice, indeed, of the close proximity of the angel of death, but with a tenderness of tone that reassures the one destined to die and comforts the survivors, rather a welcome than a warning, and having in it tones a thrill of exultation, as though the messenger spirit were bringing glad tidings to him summoned to join the waiting throng of his ancestors. If during her lifetime the banshee was an enemy of the family, however, the cry is the scream of a fiend, howling with demoniac delight, over the coming death agony of yet another of her foes. In some parts of Ireland, there exists a belief that the spirits of the dead are not taken from the earth, nor do they lose all their former interest in earthly affairs, but enjoy the happiness of the saved, or suffer the punishment imposed by their sins. In the neighborhood of the scenes along which they lived while clothed in flesh and blood, at particular crises in the affairs of mortals, these disenthralled spirits, sometimes display joy or grief in such a manner as to attract the attention of living men and women. At weddings they are frequently unseen guests, at funerals they are always present, and sometimes at both weddings and funerals. Their presence is recognized by aerial voices or mysterious music known to be of unearthly origin. The spirits of the good wander with the living as guardian angels, but the spirits of the bad are restrained in their action 
and compelled to do penance at or near the places where the crimes were committed. Some are chained at the bottom of lakes, others buried underground, others confined in mountain gorges, some hang on the sides of precipices, others are transfixed on the treetops, while others haunt the homes of their ancestors, all waiting till the penance has been endured and the hour of release arrives. The castle Duesverich in Antrim is believed to still inhabited by the chief by the spirit of a chief who there atones for a horrid crime, while the castles of Dunluz, of Magrath, and many others are similarly peopled by the wicked dead. In the Abbey of Clare, the ghost of a sinful abbot walks and will continue to do so until his sin has been atoned for by the prayers he unceasingly mutters in his tireless march up and down the aisles of the ruined nave. The banshee is of the spirits who look with interesting eyes on earthly doings and deeply attached to the old families, or on the contrary, regarding all the members with a hatred beyond that known to mortals, lingers about their dwellings to soften or to aggravate the sorrow of the approaching death. The banshee attends only the old families, and though their descendants, through misfortune, may be brought down from high estate to the ranks of pe peasant tenants, she never leaves nor forgets them till the last member of, of them has been gathered to his fathers in the churchyard. The McCarthys, McGraths, O'Neills, O'Reillys, O'Sullivans, O'Reardons, O'Flaherty's, and almost all other old families of Ireland have banshees, though many representatives of these names are in abject poverty. The song of the banshee is commonly heard a day or two before the death of which it gives notice. Though instances are cited of the song at the beginning of a course of conduct or line of under undertaking that, result that resulted fatally. Thus in County Kerry, a young girl engaged herself to a youth, and at the moment her promise of marriage was given, both heard the low, sad wail above their heads. The young man deserted her, and she died of a broken heart. And the night before her death, the banshee's song, loud and clear, was heard outside the window of her mother's cottage. One of the O'Flaherty's of Galway marched out of his castle with his men on a foray, and as his, his troops filled through the gateway, the banshee was heard high above the towers of the fortress. The next night she sang again, and was heard no more for a month. When his wife heard the wail under her window, and on the following day his followers brought back his corpse. One of the O'Neills of Shane Castle in Antrim heard the banshee as he started on a journey before daybreak, and was accidentally killed some time after, but while on the same journey. The wail most frequently comes at night, although cases are cited of banshees singing during the daytime, and the song is often inaudible to all save the one for whom the warning is intended. This, however, is not general, the death notice being for the family rather than for the doomed individual. The spirit is generally alone, though rarely several are heard singing in chorus. A lady of the O'Flattery family, greatly beloved for her social qualities, benevolence, and piety, was, some years ago, taken ill at the family mansion near Galway. Though no uneasiness was felt on her account, as her ailment seemed nothing more than a slight cold, after she had remained indoors for a day or two, several of her acquaintances came to, he to her room to enliven her imprisonment, and while the little party were merrily chatting, strange sounds were heard, and all trembled and turned pale as they recognized the singing of a chorus of banshees. The lady's ailment developed into pleurisy, and she died in a few days, the chorus being again heard in sweet, plaintive requiem as the spirit was leaving her body.
The horror of being warned by more than one the honor of being warned by more than one band she is, however, very great, and comes only to the purest of the pure. The hateful banshee is much dreaded by members of a family against which she has an enmity. A noble Irish family, whose name is still familiar in Mayo, is attended by a banshee of this description. The banshee is the spirit of a young girl deceived and afterward murdered by a former head of the family. With her dying breath she cursed the murderer and promised she would attend him and his forever. Many years passed. The chieftain reformed his ways, and his youthful crime was almost forgotten even by himself. When one night he and his family were seated by the fire, and suddenly the most horrid shrieks were heard outside the castle walls. All ran out, but saw nothing. During the night the screams continued as though the castle were besieged by demons, and the unhappy man recognized in the cry of the banshee the voice of the young girl he had murdered. The next night he was assassinated by one of his followers, when again the wild, unearthly screams of the spirit were heard, exulting over his fate. Since that night the hateful banshee has never failed to notify this family with shrill cries of revengeful gladness when the time of one of their number had arrived. Banshees are not often seen, but those that have made themselves visible differ as much in personal appearance as in the character of their cries. The friendly banshee is a young and beautiful female spirit, with pale face, regular well-formed features, hair sometimes coal-black, sometimes golden, eyes blue, brown, or black. Her long white drapery falls below her feet as she floats in the air, chanting her weird warning. Lifting her hands as if in pitying tenderness, bestowing a benediction on the soul, she summons to the invisible world. The hateful banshee is a horrible hag, with angry, distorted features. Maledictions are written in every line of her wrinkled face, and her outstretched arms call down curses on the doomed, member of the hated race. Though generally the only intimation of her presence of the banshee is her cry, a notable instance of the contrary exists in the family of the O'Reardons, to the doomed member of which the banshee always appears in the shape of, a, of an exceedingly beautiful woman, who sings a song so sweetly solemn as to reconcile him to his approaching fate. The prophetic spirit does not follow members of a family who go to a foreign land, but should death overtake them abroad, she gives notice of the misfortune to those at home. When the Duke of Wellington died, the banshee was heard wailing round the house of his ancestors, and during the Napoleonic campaigns, she frequently notified Irish families of the death and battle of Irish officers and soldiers. The night before the Battle of Boyne, Several banshees were heard singing in the air over the Irish camp, the truth of their prophecy being verified by the death roll the next day. How the banshee is able to obtain early and accurate information from foreign parts of the death and battle of Irish soldiers is yet undecided in Hiberian mystical circles. Some believe that there are, in addition to the two kinds already mentioned, silent banshees, who act as attendants to the members of the old families, one to each member that these silent spirits follow and observe, bringing back intelligence to the family banshee at home, who then, at the proper seasons, sings her dolorous strain. A partial confirmation of this theory is seen in the fact that the banshee has given notice at the family seat in Ireland of deaths and battles fought in every part of the world, from North America, the West Indies, Africa, Australia, India, China, from every point to which Irish regiments have followed the roll of the British drums, 
news of the prospective shedding of Irish blood has been brought home, and the slaughter preceded by a banshee's wail outside the ancestral windows. But it is due to the reader to state that this silent banshee theory is by no means well or generally received. The burden of evidence going to show that there are only two kinds of banshees, and that in a supernatural way they know the immediate future of those in whom they are, are interested, not being obliged to leave Ireland for the purpose of obtaining their information. Such is the wild banshee, once to be heard in every part of Ireland, and formerly believed, and so devoutly, that to express a doubt of her existence was little less than blasphemy. Now, however, as she attends only the old families, and does not change to the new, with the disappearance of many noble Irish names during the last half-century, have gone also their banshees, until in only a few retired districts of the west coast is the dreaded spirit still found, while in most parts of the island she has become only a superstition, and from the majesty of a death-botting angel is rapidly sinking to the level of the fairy, the leprechaun, and the puka, the subject for tales to amuse the idle and terrify the young. As well as warning families of an upcoming death, the banshee also liked to cry at the crowning of a true king. One reported case of this happening was at the crowning of the legendary Brian Baru, who overthrew the O'Neills and began the O'Brien dynasty. Possibly the only example of a human banshee appearance was in 1437, when a woman purporting to be a seer approached King James I of Scotland and correctly predicted his murder at the instigation of the Earl of Athol. In 1801, the banshee paid a visit to the commander-in-chief of the British forces in Ireland. He had attended a party at Dublin Castle and invited a few guests back to his home in Mount Kennedy, County Wicklow. Afterwards, these guests, Sir John Barrington and his wife, woke up at 2.30 a.m. to what he described as plaintive sounds coming from outside his window. His wife and a maid were also awoken by it, and the sound later turned into the name Rossmore, being screeched three times. The next morning, they were told that a servant, having heard odd sounds from Rossmore's room at 2.30 a.m., entered to find him dying. So, folks, that gives us some more of the famous stories of banshees in Irish history. Now, I've got something a bit different here, which is an article from the Irish Times on April the 8th of 1893. And this one is quite interesting. It says, I do not believe the banshee's cry is not now heard in Ireland. I most distinctively heard it about five years ago, previously to the death of my dear brother. He was ailing at the time. It was twelve o'clock at night. I was up with him watching in case he required a drink, when suddenly I heard an indescribable mournful cry. A letter to the Weekly Irish Times on April the 8th, 1893, titled, Where Has the Banshee Gone? answered its own question. It hadn't gone anywhere. But that was far from the end of it. The Banshee would grip readers for months as skeptics and witnesses lined up to fill the columns of the editor's letterbox. Accounts differ, but one thing is certain. The Banshee, like so many other topics, polarized readers in 1893. My father heard the Banshee cry 40 years ago for a great aunt of mine, or I should say before the death of my great aunt, wrote Minnie McCown from County Armagh the following week. It was an early hour of the morning. The Banshee was then said or supposed to be a little woman. However, she has never been seen or heard of since that time. I hear old Irish people say there are no witches now, so the Banshee and witches must all be gone to the same country. The cry was heard in Wicklow, too. 
A writer named Uvoka stated she was distinctly heard on a hill in Uvoka County, Wicklow, about 8 o'clock one night last month, by my sister and her husband. The next morning they heard of the death of a friend. Pip the Fiddler's uncle had died, and the letter writer was sure the dying man himself had addressed the spirit. An uncle of mine being very ill, my father, and some country neighbors were staying up with him all night. About 12 o'clock, my uncle suddenly sat up in the bed and pointed towards the window. He exclaimed, Ah, you're there! Poor thing you are! Just then, they all distinctly heard the mournful wail of the banshee. He died early the next day. With the testimonials came the detractors. One of the staunchest early naysayers was E.O.B., who said he was glad of the banshee's disappearance. To my mind, the advance of education and consequent diminution of superstition is quite sufficient to account for it. But so long as ignorance obtains in some parts of the country, so long will the voice of the banshee be occasionally heard, or until some modern St. Patrick banishes all the cats, owls, peacocks, jackasses, and laughing dogs from Ireland, wrote E.O.B. That letter sparked fresh outrage, not least of all because of the condescending tone and linking of belief and superstition to an unsophisticated class. Gee, folks, where have you heard that before? Haven't you heard me get a little upset about such things? The word peasantry was rolled out a bit, but readers seemed to feel the banshee was an enduring folk legend to be taken more seriously than leprechauns. If EOB refuses to believe the existence of the banshee, he must consider the statements of many wise, virtuous, and honorable men untrue. He and persons like him have done much to diminish belief in the banshee's existence. But is the world any better on that account? asked Ancho the following week. In the middle of the debate, some attempted compromise unsuccessfully. Leighton Hill was shot down after theorizing that animals were likely making the noises, and that animals are sometimes disturbed at the death of a human being. Meanwhile, the literists weren't happy when Hyacinth wondered how useful it was examining the facts underlying a poetic belief. Two debaters emerged in the final phases. R.K. Hamilton, in the last week of July, said without hard evidence, the banshee was to be seen as a delusion, which I regret so many Irish people cling to, and only because these delusions were handed down to them from their ancestors. Patrick Farrell, in response, spun his own Kildare Banshee yarn. It was a beautiful moonlit night in December. Business having detained me until a late hour, and not feeling weary, I determined to have a short stroll this night, being gloriously fine. On my return, I was astonished to find my greyhound trembling violently the cold sweat actually dripping off of him. For some time, I sought in vain for a solution of this strange occurrence. After some time, I heard coming from the bush in the middle of the small paddock at the back of my house a long, low wail, and after some time, the most piteous sobbing I have ever heard. Being a disbeliever in banshees, ghosts, goblins, fairies, leprechauns, and company, I was glad of an opportunity to test once and for all their genuineness. Farrell had trouble stirring the terrified dog. He set out alone with his stick to investigate. Among the shrubs, he saw a deer, milk white, and sobbing in the most heart-rending manner. Farrell watched for five minutes and then took a swing at the animal. The stick passed through the space, but I heard such a scream as I hope and pray shall never fall on my ears again. Farrell fled the scene to later discover that his cousin in Australia died that very night. R.K. Hamilton wasn't sold. In his reply, he said Farrell had proven only that he hit a deer with a stick, or maybe his greyhound, 
or perhaps his own leg. Sometime in August, readers became bored. In letters on different topics, they asked why the Banshee had demanded attention, while other worthy issues went ignored. The debate petered out without an answer. The letters section moved on, as so many in Ireland had already. Besides, there were many more pressing matters at hand. Can horses think? And should consumptives marry? Needed the space. Another tale is of a rider being told of an uncle who was walking home one cold, blustery night, and on arriving home, told his mother that he had tried to comfort an old woman, dressed in black with a veil over her face, who was crying and wailing outside the house. But every time he went over to her, she moved away and kept pointing at the house. My grandmother knew straight away that this old lady represented, and sent my uncle to bed telling him she would have a look. Needless to say, she didn't dare look herself. Three days later, my grandmother's brother died peacefully in his sleep. As children, we used to plague my uncle to recount the story of the night he tried to invite the Banshee in for tea. The origin of the Banshee is really quite ordinary compared to the tales that surround her. In medieval times, during funerals, a woman would take on the role of Keener. Keener sang sad songs called Quinya, the Irish word for crying, at the graveside. There was good business to be made as a keener, as families would pay very well for a talented one. The best-known ones always attended the funerals of the biggest and most well-known people and were much sought after, as the more people mourned at a funeral, the greater the person was said to be. For the most powerful families, it was a common belief that a banshee or fairy woman would come to keen at the grave, fairies presumably being more talented singers than any human could possibly be. The Irish phrase became anglicized to Banshee, and over time the stories developed and morphed into what we know today. The fact that the Keeners were paid in alcohol and often ended up as elderly alcoholic women that were banished from towns and villages also adds to the myth. The first known written record of a Banshee story is Sean McRae's Triumphs of Turlough. Originally, the Banshee appeared to people who were just about to suffer a violent and painful death, such as murder. In later stories, she wailed outside the door at night usually around wooded areas close by, but was rarely seen. Cynics and realists who claim the story to be nothing more than old wives' tales say that the whales were actually just barn owls or vixens crying in the night. If you don't know what a vixen is, folks, that's a female fox. If you've ever heard either animal, they do sound remarkably similar to a woman screeching. Well, to a degree. The banshee was usually described as ugly elderly woman dressed in white or gray with long silver hair. As I've said before, not all banshees are hate-filled creatures. There are some that had strong ties to their families in life and continue to watch after them in death. When they manifest themselves, these banshees appear as beautiful, enchanting women that sing a sorrowful, haunting song which is filled with concern and love for those families. The song can be heard a few days before the death of a family member, and in most cases the song can only be heard by the person for whom it is intended. On the other side of the coin, we have the angry and scary banshee that most of us are familiar with. During their lives, these women had reasons to hate those families and appear as distorted and frightening apparitions, filled with hatred. The howls emanated by these banshees are enough to chill you to the bone. Rather than appearing to warn a family member, these banshees are celebrating the future demise of someone they loathed. So as I say, this is a bit of a difference between the good banshee, so to speak, and the evil banshee. Other Irish mythology stories relating to the banshee say that she is the ghost of a young girl that suffered a brutal death and her spirit remains to warn family members that a violent death is imminent. 
It is said that this banshee appears as an old woman with rotten teeth and long fingernails. She wears rags and has blood-red eyes that are so filled with hate that looking directly into them will cause your immediate death. The banshee's mouth is always open as a piercing scream torments the souls of the living. One version on the origin of the banshee tells that the female apparition is later revealed to be the Morrigan, the Irish goddess of battles, sovereignty, and strife. The Morrigan is the Irish version of the Valkyries, who decided the fates of warriors during the Germanic battles. According to some tales, there are evil banshees that derive pleasure from taking a life, and they actively seek out their victims and wail at them to the point where the person commits suicide or goes insane. There are even banshees that can tear people to shreds, and these horrific apparitions are what feature in modern-day horror films. It is important to note that banshees do not bring death, as I say. However, they warn of it and give the family time to prepare for the inevitable. The banshee was relatively harmless. Apart from the dread people felt at hearing her cry, the only other fearsome activities she seemed to get up to were knocking on doors or windows. While the banshee will not harm the person she encounters, there is another Irish female spirit who isn't nearly as benign. The Lanhan She, or Sweetheart Fairy, was somewhat more malicious. She sought the love of mortal men, and their desire for her was so intense that they were driven to madness and ultimately destroyed. Now, W.B. Yeats described her in his book, Fairy and Folklore of the Irish Peasantry. The Lanhan She, fairy mistress, seeks the love of mortals. If they refuse, she must be their slave. If they consent, they are hers, and can only escape by finding another to take their place. The fairy lives on their life, and they waste away. Death is no escape from her. She is the Gaelic muse, for she gives inspiration to those she persecutes. The Gaelic poets die young, for she is restless, and will not let them remain long on earth. This malignant phantom. There was also a similar manifestation of the banshee, known as the Binne, or Washing Woman, although this is more attributed to Scottish folklore than to Irish. Instead of wailing and crying at night to warn someone of death, she would instead wash the bloody clothes of the woman, of the person about to meet their doom, in a local water source. Her appearance was generally thought to be the same, although she was sometimes washing her own bloody clothes instead of someone else's, and you've heard me read some of these tales. No one is actually sure whether banshees get the knowledge of a person's death from. One theory suggests that each family member has their own personal observer. And again, I've already covered that over for you, but it is a fascinating idea that they went into great depth to think of how do they actually know that these people are dying overseas or in other parts of the country. So folks, what are we left with here? The Banshee is considered to be a creature bound under the belief in superstition and the supernatural. Others even think it's only a figure of wild imagination by some people. Banshees were considered as creatures in the woods and often not to be seen by most people. Instead, their weeping is only heard from a distance, and there are only a number of cases reported that they were seen. Based on a description of the sounds that the people once heard, many explained them away as howls of wolves at night, a gust of wind blowing on hollow trees, and other animals making weeping-like noises. Another off-blamed culprit of, for the Banshee is the Barn Owl. Mind you, the Barn Owl has been blamed for Mothman and many other supernatural beings. For what it's worth, they're right up there with the Sandhill Crane and Coyotes for blaming strange entities on. In ancient battles, owls would screech and take flight if they noticed an army approaching. 
which would forewarn the defending army. For what it's worth, JT has seen barn owls at night and in the forest, and I would like to state that one, they didn't remind me of a banshee, and two, none of my family, that I know of anyway, died the next day. I had several encounters with them as a child and a teenager. In cases of actual apparition, it could possibly be that those who have seen this mysterious being may have been seeing some type of optical illusion as the banshee is usually seen covered with mist in the woods. According to some scientists, our human brain is trained to pick up any human-like figure from the things all around us. Basic examples of this phenomenon is when one takes a picture and then sees a face at the background, which was actually the cause of the distortion of light and the mirage effect, seeing images in the distance. It is unknown precisely when stories of the Banshee first were told, but they can be traced back as far as the early 8th century. It is believed they were based on the old Irish tradition where women would sing a lament to signify one's passing, the keeners, the keeners that I've already talked about. This too was referred to as keening. As many keeners accepted alcohol as payment, which the church frowned upon, many have speculated it, was these keeners who were punished in the eyes of God and were forced to become banshees later. Whether it is real or not, the banshee still remains as one of the supernatural creatures that haunts the minds of human beings. Seeing it or hearing it is a definitive sign of death, so the next time you hear a woman weeping, pray that no one will die the next day in your family. So my friends, I hope that you have enjoyed the story of the banshee. There's many different explanations and many different possibilities for what it was or what it is that people have seen. And who knows, maybe the Banshee's still out there somewhere. I've got my own thoughts, but as always, I leave it up to you as the audience to make up your mind. Now, tonight, folks, I'm going to leave you with a very special treat. One of my favorite and closest to my heart of Irish folk songs, although, as with so many great songs, this one was most likely originally a Scottish tune. But then again, things like this are hard to follow through the years. The Parting Glass or stirrup cup, was the final hospitality offered to a departing guest. Once they had mounted, they were presented one final drink to fortify and prepare them for their journey. The custom was practiced in several continental countries, but especially revered in Scotland and Ireland. I've got no fear of being chased for royalties, as this song is at least 250 years old, and most likely far older, and I really do hope that you enjoy my rendition. Oh, all the money that e'er I spent... I spent it in good company, and all the harm that e'er I've done, alas, it was to none but me. And all I've done for want of wit, to memory now I can't recall. So fill to me the parting glass, good night and joy be to you all. Oh, all the comrades that e'er I had Are sorry for my going away And all the sweethearts that e'er I had Would wish me one more day to stay But since it falls unto my lot That I should rise and you should not I'll gently rise and all softly call. Good night and joy be to you all.